Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Futs on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris, and I'm joined today by uh, no one. Uh, yes, uh, unfortunately, due to some scheduling issues, it's just me today, uh, which did give me an opportunity to revisit something we'd planned a little while ago at some point in the dim and distant past of last year, prompted in part by the welcome news of his retirement, we decided we should look at the career of Uwe Ball. I say we, as it turns out, no one else has quite the same level of disregard for their own sanity as myself, so you are, I'm afraid, stuck with me hollering at you as we crash through this whistle-stop tour of Ball's lowlights, and I suppose by comparison of nothing else, highlights, in this selection of what is supposed we can just about call films. Normally on this podcast we are discussing films that we enjoy, or seeking new films that we think we will, and I think we're broadly more positive than negative. This will be very much redressing that balance, so if that's not your bag, no hard feelings and we'll see you in 10 days with normal service resumed. For everyone else, strap in, it's going to get bumpy. Before this ill-considered notion, my exposure to Uwe Ball was limited almost entirely to his adaptation of Sega's zombie-based light gun shooter The House of the Dead, and, well, that was enough for me, thanks. The most frightening aspect of that film these days is that it was made 15 years ago, a terrifying milepost of my march towards the sweet release of death. What I'm trying to say is that 15 years is more than my adult memory can contend with, so I'm left with only vague impressions of some rave-going teens striking out to a mysterious island on a boat captain by Jürgen Prochnow, of all people, finding a plague of zombies. And the house, I assume. I could, I suppose, have rewatched this to see if it was merely a decade and a half ahead of its time, but I'm not that daft. What I most vividly recall, with perhaps the exception of a banging prodigy knockoff track, Danger Danger, by a group I'm apparently supposed to call Code Thrasher, was Ball's visionary decision to splice in footage from the arcade game into his awful cut-price action sequences in such a way that we couldn't work out whether it was satire or a budget-cutting exercise. I'll leave the overall judgement to Craig's words from a review for theoneliner.com, which was, House of the Dead is childish, directed in the most amateurish fashion imaginable, has the cheapest production values imaginable, feels like a TV movie, and yet has still managed to find its way into cinemas. Definitely not a high point. But while charting Ball's career, you might as well start at the bottom, and fellow video game adaptation Alone in the Dark fights off stiff competition from House of the Dead to be the bottom of Ball's deep, dark barrel, at least as far as the general opinion goes. But is this actually a misunderstood work of great import? Unjustly sullied in an internet pylon? No. Sorry to ruin the dramatic tension. I know I had you going for a second. Christian Slater, of all people, joins us as Edward Carnby, the private investigator who can't escape the supernatural in the adventure games of old. This is very loosely based on the rebooted game of 2001, which wasn't very good, so I suppose there's some truth to Ball's work. Here, Carnby is on the hunt for some ancient artefacts from a lost Mayan-esque civilization. however so is Matthew Walker's Professor Lionel Hudgens, who has an altogether more sinister reason for wanting them. Sinister, but in no way practical. It Turns out that Carnby was part of some secret programme to experiment on children to give them enhanced abilities, which Professor Hodgkins led, and who is now obsessed with finding gizmos that act as a key to a portal to another dimension, or something like that, it's not very well elucidated. This turns out to unleash a horde of awful CG alien knockoffs that Carnby must stop, aided by Stephen Dorff and his G-Men soldier goons from Bureau 713 and his girlfriend Tara Reed's Aline Sedrak. 
She's supposedly a museum curator and archaeologist, which, as credulity-stretching casting goes, is up there with Denise Richards, the nuclear physicist. Apparently, there's an initial version of this script that hewed closer to the suspense horror roots of the video game. If so, it's been completely eradicated in favour of quite the dumpster fire of horrible action nonsense, featuring CG so appalling I literally cannot even. I tried very hard, but no even was forthcoming. Now, I don't particularly like any of the actors in this film, but when you look at what and who they've got to work with, it's hard to blame them for putting in the bare minimum to collect the cheque. I don't know the actuality of what it's like on set, but it's hard to imagine Ball working any actor to get the most out of the performance. The plot's a poorly woven mess of strands that don't make any sense, although admittedly by the time the halfway mark had rolled round, I'd stopped paying more than cursory attention to it. Awful plot, awful characters, awful action, awful acting, awful dialogue, awful effects, awful smell, just all sorts of awful. Sits comfortably in the unsweet spot of being bad enough to be terrible without being terrible enough to be good. Do not watch, even ironically. I regret wasting time on this pish. So then, Heart of America. Now, when I said House of the Dead was the most of my exposure to Ball's work back in the day, this was the asterisk that you may have heard in my voice. After that bafflingly dreadful experience, I'd poked around in the dark corners where people with some regard for his prior works hid, and the general opinion was that Heart of America was a good film, not like House of the Dead, which no one's eager to defend. So I tracked it down, watched the first third of it, before coming to the rapid conclusion that these people had some sort of warped perception of what a decent film construes, and wrote the whole thing off as a bad idea. If only I'd done the same thing 15 years later. To be scrupulously fair, Heart of America does start off with a well-executed, long, reasonably complex tracking shot establishing a small American town. Unfortunately, this is a high that the rest of the film will never match. It purports to tell us of the last day in a typical American high school, with slices of life from a variety of characters featuring teen pregnancy, drug abuse, affairs, troubled teachers, and most prominently bullying. And the bullied's method of getting even on the last day of school in a Columbine trench coat mafia sort of way. I'll get on to much worse films later, making this comparatively good, but still sub-TV movie of the week. The dialogue is, well, let's politely say, not brilliant, but there is at least some talent on board who can pull some charm from it. Hello again, Jurgen Brocknow, Clint Howard, and also an early appearance from Elizabeth Moss, uh, later to find plaudits aplenty in The Handmaid's Tale, of course. However, many characters do not fare quite so well, including Brendan Fletcher, who's going to appear many times on this list, and I really wish he wouldn't. I don't know if it's because he's not directing in his native language or if it's due to a lack of time or money to reshoot, but throughout Ball's career there are just some roles where the acting performance is so bad it's hard to believe anyone's happy with it. And it's at these moments the hackneyed melodrama of this script really shines through. Or, well, whatever the opposite of shining through is, I suppose. It is, of course, a real shame that the mass shootings portrayed here and listed in the pre-credits have in no meaningful way been addressed in the 15 years since this film was made, the highlighting of which was, I believe, Ball's stated aim. That, however, is no reason to watch this film, nor the odd decent bit of camera work amongst a script this lacklustre. As with many of the films to be discussed here, not recommended. Returning to video games, we'll talk about Postal. Now, I've never understood the appeal of the video game Postal, which in a nutshell, is like Grand Theft Auto had it been written by a sociopath who thinks themselves funny and not reprehensible. An ideal fit for Ball, then. Zing. Curiously, some had touted this as one of his better video game-based films, and I suppose it's the one that comes closest to capturing the nature of the source material for what very little that's worth. Zack Ward's Postal Dude attempts to find work in an American hellhole called Paradise, 
but nothing seems forthcoming. Partly in desperation, he turns to his uncle Dave, played by Dave Foley. Oh, David. A scam artist who's running the local religious cult. Dave does have an idea to make a bit of money, as he needs to pay off a sizeable tax bill himself. There will be a shipment of valuable dolls coming to the Little Germany theme park, and they're going to steal them and sell them on eBay. Heist of the century. Unfortunately, Al-Qaeda are intent on using the same dolls to spread bird flu across the USA, leading to a violent shootout that sees Uwe Ball getting shot in the bollocks after admitting his films were financed with Nazi gold, and that's not even the most tasteless joke in that scene. And so it goes with uh, Dave's right-hand man and unfortunate true believer Richard, played by Chris Coppola, also incrementing the chaos by mounting a coup and trying to fulfil Dave's apocalyptic prophecies by getting a thousand monkeys to rape Fern Troyer, before everything ends in a big old mess of violence bringing the whole sorry affair to our clothes. Clearly, everything in Postal has been pushed to the extremes, with the intent of satirising everything from Islamic extremism, Attitudes to 9-11, capitalism, violence and culture, hell, even Ball's work itself, but also criticism of Ball's work. It's perhaps not fair to criticise Postal for having all the subtlety of a half-brick hurled through the window, as that's exactly what it's aiming for, but it's such an overwhelmingly ugly thing to be aiming for that you just have to make clear sometimes what a bad idea it is. Its scattergun nature means that while a few jokes will most likely land for you, it's hidden amongst a ton of pure garbage that's far more tiresome than it is offensive. As always with comedy, it's tough to give it more of a damning critique than saying it's just not remotely funny, so consider it damned, I suppose. Yet, sense of humour is a very personal and individual thing, and I suppose I can imagine 13-year-old version of me being amused by the combination of bad taste, violence, and boobs, and cutting this a little bit more slack. So I guess what I'm saying is, this is a film by idiots, for idiots. So, if you're an idiot, you'll love Postal. My condolences. More video game adaptations with In the Name of the King, a Dungeon Siege tale. Now, have you ever wondered what would have happened had we lived in an alternative universe where Uwe Ball was somehow given the rights to Lord of the Rings? If so, seek medical attention immediately, but this loose adaptation of the Dungeon Siege game will also give you an approximate idea of the blighted hellscape that alternative Earth must be. Jason Statham collects a paycheck as a character named Farmer, who is a farmer, because of course he is, but a farmer with a mysterious past. Ooh, how exciting. At any rate, the call to adventure comes when a rampaging force of I can't believe it's not orcs, the Krugs, battle through Farmer's village and kidnap his wife Solana, played by Claire Forlani, and his young lad, amongst others. King Conrad, Burt Reynolds, yes, Burt Reynolds, deal with it, and his army shows up too late to do anything apart from promise vengeance, but Farmer and his buddies Norick, Ron Perlman, and the Bastion, played by Will Sanderson, decide that vengeance is a dish best served by yourself. Sort of like a vengeance buffet. But don't fill up on the vengeance breadsticks though, that's how they get you. It transpires that all this is going down because evil sorcerer Galleon, because evil sorcerer Galleon, Rayleigh Otta, yes, Rayleigh Otta, deal with it, is conspiring with Duke Fallow, Matthew Lillard, yes, Matthew Lillard, deal with it, to overthrow the king and claim the throne. Trying to stop this are the king's mage Merrick, John Rhys Davis, and his magically inclined daughter Mariella, Lily Sobieski, army commander Tarish, Brian J. White, and Elora, Christiana Loken, who is the leader of the Certainly Not Elves of the Forest. Some common or garden fantasy swordplay nonsense occurs for two hours, during which the truth of Farmer's mysterious heritage is revealed and Galleon's plan is foiled with great sacrifice and no one gives much of a toss either way. A sad fate for $60 million, which could have been better spent, tossed onto a bonfire. 
to be scrupulously fair, this cash has at least translated into a higher production value than we've seen from Ball before, and with more name recognition in the cast list, even if it does seem that the roles were decided by a random number generator. Also, while the execution isn't great, this does at least have characters with clear motivations and a structure that makes sense, and the least worst action scenes so far in his career. If you squint at it a little bit, this is a proper film. Unfortunately, it's a proper film in the way that Dungeons & Dragons was a proper film. It's just bad in conventional ways, rather than Ball's more usual off-the-wall bad. In anyone else's hands, I'd be a little puzzled as to how this went wrong. Sure, some of these roles are terribly miscast, but most of the heavy lifting is done by Statham, Perlman and John Reese davis in familiar enough roles that Ball should have eked some charm out of them, but in common with the rest of his films, Ball wastes his cast. Speaking of miscast... Burt Reynolds at least just looks puzzled by the whole experience, but Matthew Lillard and Ray Liotta were apparently told that no amount of overacting could be overacted enough and go hog-wild, making this a very silly film indeed. None of the films we've spoken about so far were close to mediocre, let alone good, and while there's probably some rationale for saying that, on paper, this is a better film than any of those, at least other efforts had the saving grace of being obnoxiously terrible. In the Name of the King is just boringly, conventionally subpar and therefore less interesting than Ball's other belly flops. Bad on all levels. Avoid. Rounding out the video games for now. Blood Rain, the third right. At some point, the Ball video game gravy train came, if not entirely to a halt, down a more poorly financed sidetrack, which brings us to the third in the series of Blood Rain films, from a game series that only had two installments. From the first film's $25 million budget, featuring the likes of Ben Kingsley, Michelle Rodriguez and Christiana Loken, we are reduced to $10 million and the lead roles going to the likes of Natasha Malthy and Michael Parr. Ironically, this has made it a better film, but that's only barely hurdling the lowest of all imaginable bars. Blood Drain, The Third Reich, is also the instalment with the closest relationship to the video game. However, the video game was about a vampire fighting Nazis, so you can make up your own mind whether that's a good thing or not. And, well, not a lot more details to tell you, really. Natasha Malthy plays the half-vampire Blade Daywalker-esque Rain, who teams up with local resistance fighters headed by Brendan Fletcher, him again, doing an accent from somewhere on Earth, can't narrow it down much further than that. It turns out that amongst all the usual Nazi tomfoolery, concentration camps, all that jazz, a Mengele-esque doctor, played by Clint Howard, him again, and his CEO, Michael Parr's commandant Brandt, has got his hands on some vampires and seeks to understand their strange powers and use them to give Hitler eternal life. Rain and the Resistance must stop them, at great cost, and through means that I don't think it will help anyone if I recount here. Now, $10 million isn't all that much to try and produce a period action flick, let alone one with a supernatural bent. The charitable thing to say here would be that the budget is stretched to accommodate the story and the less charitable way would be to say that this looks really cheap and unpleasant. Again, the dialogue could use a lot of work, and the action scenes wind up flat and uninteresting. There's a small amount of joy to be had from Clint Howard's scenery chewing, but the rest of the cast is pretty much a bust. In Natasha Mal's case, quite literally, she's wooden enough to make Brendan Fletcher seem like a master character actor by comparison, but the two leads have no chemistry whatsoever, meaning there's nothing at all that's worth looking at here. And again, this was the best in the series. Yeesh. This will bring us to Max Schmeling, and here's a novelty. A ball film that, and I'm as shocked as you are, isn't bad. It's not a great film, but it is at least a film, and for that we should all be thankful. It's a biopic of, who else? Max Schmeling. 
the German boxer active at, unfortunately, the same time Germany was becoming rather active in the burgeoning goose-stepping scene of the 30s and 40s. Framing devices aside, we join him pretty much just as he comes to international prominence, controversially becoming heavyweight champion after Jark Sharkey decided to punch him in the dick during their match. The bulk of the film is about Max's attempts to prove that he's a worthy competitor, deserving of better nicknames than the Low Blow Champion. I agree, I mean, Dick Punch Champion was right there, people. After some struggles, he eventually achieves respect by dealing the rising star of Joe Lewis one of his three career losses, the two becoming lifelong friends in the process, with Schmeling losing the eventual rematch. Outside of the ring, there's also Max's relationship with his eventual wife, Czech actress Annie Ondra to consider, and also his ongoing struggle to remain an active boxer without joining the Nazi party as part of a difficult pre-war balancing act. He is forced to go to war once that breaks out, becoming a paratrooper, but once the war ends, Max is left with nothing. He tries to reclaim some pride and cash with a comeback in the ring, but it's not to be, retiring from boxing to a successful life as part of Coca-Cola's expansion back into post-war Germany, which is not covered in the film, but perhaps could have been an interesting part of the story. Perhaps I'm cutting this a little bit too much slack, in part because I could only find this through certain alternatively legal avenues, and the English subtitles I obtained, well, let's just say they have a hint of the Google Translate about them. However, between that and my barely remembered high school German, I think I pieced it together well enough. Caveat aside, this film does a decent job of hitting the main points in Schmeling's life. If anything, it's trying to cram too much in, and would perhaps have been a little more interesting film had it focused exclusively on the attitudes of the world to an athlete perceived as a Nazi, despite doing his best to remain disassociated with them. However, that would perhaps stray a little bit too far from the biopic descriptor for comfort. There's nothing greatly wrong with Max Schmeling, apart from it feeling like every other boxing biopic. There's only so many ways you can frame a story of someone punching someone else, and this isn't a particularly innovative one. But in the present company, that makes it a masterpiece by comparison. It's still not something I'd particularly recommend anyone see, certainly not unless a reasonable English translation appears. Next up, we'll talk about Auschwitz. Rounding out this Nazi-themed interlude, Ball's look at the most horrendous chapter of his country's history is... super weird on a number of levels. It starts with an introductory spiel from Ball, outlining why he made this, and he makes a fair case. Despite any pelters I've thrown at his output over the course of this, after reading assorted interviews and such as background, I can at least appreciate that he's no dummy or deluded about his own work. His contention is that Holocaust has essentially been too sanitised in recent works, for the supremely understandable reason that it's literally the worst thing, and in part he thinks this is why it's become easier to deny that it ever happened, along with some woefully inadequate teaching. It's not a ridiculous position, and one that's backed up with interviews with assorted school kids at the end of the film, who vary from highly informed to ill-informed to not caring about being informed. It's the middle third that's a gut punch, a recreation of a batch of inmates being admitted, systematically stripped of possessions, clothing, dignity and their lives, in largely unflinching detail. There's not many other films that will show a baby being shot in the head. There's moments where the film's low-budget roots show through, but it's tough to notice them on the periphery, given the horror unfolding centre stage. Obviously, it's disturbing, and for once Ball achieves exactly what he sets out to do. The problems with Ball's Auschwitz, for once, have nothing to do with the quality of the film, but rather the problems of nearly every other film he's made. If we were to imagine Ball's career focusing on issues like this and Heart of America's violence, he might have had the credibility to pull something like this off and perhaps be recognised as a low-budget indie filmmaker trying to shine a light on unpleasant subjects and be rather more warmly regarded. But Ball made House of the Dead and all that other garbage and postal but chooses Nazis for a few gags. I found it impossible not to watch this with all that baggage, 
without expecting it to be exploitative nonsense. Now, I don't think that this is, but the miasma of disreputability that Ball has brought to it makes it feel as though it is. I try and talk about it dispassionately, but this is not really the topic to be dispassionate about. So, yes, super weird. Not in any sort of traditional sense, a film, and not something for which terms like good or bad really apply, but it is a work that deserves better than the understandable passing over that it's received. Next up, Attack on Darfur, another of of Ball's attempts, and again, for all the snark poured this way here, I believe an entirely genuine attempt to put something of a spotlight on tragic world events. Attack of Darfur follows a number of Western journalists, played by the likes of Billy Zane, David O'Hara, Edward Furlong and Christiana Logan, her again, as they investigate the genocide in Darfur. They are escorted by Hakim K. Kazim's Captain Jack Tabamke of the Allied Nations, who I believe are the same Ersatz UN shower that John Claude Van Damme worked for in the Street Fighter film. They interview some villagers, giving some insight into the behaviours and mindsets of the militias and rebels across Sudan before the Janjaweed hit squad show up. They turf the Avengers out and set about raising the village to the ground, pillaging, raping and murdering. Again, with babies in quite gruesome detail, while the more action-oriented of the journalists decide that they can't stand by and head back to make a difference. This would be tempting to start labelling as a white saviour narrative, except there's not really any saving going on, as it turns out. I won't belabor the point other than to say exactly the same analysis of Auschwitz applies. Of all the films we're talking about today, it would be the last three I could almost recommend, Max Schmeling being a traditional but competent biopic, and Auschwitz and Attack on Darfur at least having some value in keeping some of humanity's worst moments in mind, albeit in ways that could perhaps be handled better by realising that it's somehow easier for us flawed humans to focus on an individual rather than the horrors inflicted on the many as shown in Attack on Darfur and Auschwitz. So, mercifully, we'll round all this off with a brief look at Ball's own little franchise, starting out with Rampage, in which our good friend Brendan Fletcher stars, so you can perhaps guess where this is going. A seemingly normal early 20s Bill Williamson works as a mechanic, while his parents encourage him to either go on to college or move out of the house already. Bloody millennials. Anyway, despite not seeming all that unhappy with his life, apart from not getting the coffee he ordered made properly, he seems to take on board the ranting of some eco-warrior, too-many-people-on-earth internet video personality and decides to do something about it. That something being assembling a homemade suit of bulletproof armour, getting a bunch of guns, and shooting people for, like, an hour, after which he frames what was supposed to be his friend for the deed, showing a frightening degree of planning, and escapes with the money he stole from a bank during the events of the film which rather undermines the attempts to paint him as a disaffected loner seduced by extremism, which may have been the point, except if it is, the two sequels don't make sense. Possibly all of the above is simultaneously true, it's hard to say with Ball's films. At this point in the podcast, I must admit I'm running out of interesting ways to say I didn't like this film. Its politics are sophomoric, the dialogue atrocious and the acting abysmal. I get the impression that Brendan Fletcher is supposed to be a charismatic, mesmeric presence, a sort of anti-establishment Charles Manson, but he only ever seems like some daft little kid making this a difficult series to take seriously on any level at all. Perhaps some message could be better divined here if there was more time devoted to quite why Bill goes off the rails, but so much of this film is just random gunfire, like a really boring commando cosplay, that there's no reason to recommend this film. Apart perhaps from the scene where a heavily armed armour-clad psychopath wanders into a bingo hall of oblivious OAPs, eats half a sandwich and leaves without anyone batting an eyelid. As you do. Second in the series, Rampage Capital Punishment follows on from Rampage as one may follow on from a fart. 
We return to our psychopathic anti-hero Bill Williamson after a few years of living off the grid. For reasons left uncovered, he emerges briefly from hiding in order to post a YouTube video of his rambling anti-commercialism, anti-authoritarian, pseudo-anarchist manifesto before burning down his house. As you do. He won't be needing it anymore, you see, as he packs up his bag of guns and daft suit of armour and heads off to a television station with the intent of broadcasting his message to a wider audience. So, in short, he rounds up obnoxious anchorman Chip Barker, Lachlan Munro, another returning anti-champion of many prior bulwarks, along with the rest of the studio staff, and holds them gunpoint to do just that, with the threat of explosives keeping the quickly assembled SWAT teams at bay. And, well, there's not much more to it than that, really, bar a lot of ranting and killing, in both a narrative and a wider meaning sense. Williamson appears to be inciting the country to violently rise up against the status quo, like a gun-toting Russell Brand, but as he has less charisma than a chew of Pringles, I suspect this revolution would go slightly sniggered at and then politely ignored. Likewise, I'm supposed to be impressed with the level of forethought shown in his planning of his brutality, the placement of cameras and the traps and the like, as though this is some darkest timeline version of Home Alone. If only he had slapped aftershave on himself, then perhaps this could have magically transferred some of the charm over, as well as the basic setup. This film is largely boring. Kill it with fire. So... Third in the series, Rampage, President Down. Oh god, there's another one. Thankfully the last, and don't think you're getting to see anything interesting, like the planning and execution of an assassination of a president. No, that happens off camera, because that would be expensive. You know what's not expensive? Woods. So most of the film is Bill dribbling his by now usual nonsense to a camera, while the FBI sit in a remote office, nominally hunting him down while discussing amongst themselves his mantras, raging across race to military interventionism, in an extraordinarily forced manner, before heading into the woodland death traps that Bill has been preparing. Now, I am as tired of seeing it as you are viewing it. This is the most awful film in an awful series of films, and no one will derive any joy from it. This effort, it goes without saying, has been a colossal waste of my time and energy, and I hope it at least provided some enjoyment for you, dear listener, as it means it is something that I won't necessarily regret on my deathbed. So there we go then, a brief look at some of the career of UA Ball. I don't think we've really uncovered a lot of surprises here. Most sane people would be ignoring his films. That is certainly what I recommend in general. So, normal service will be resumed in a mere 10 days, and until that time, if you would like to get in touch with us, please do. You can do so through email, podcast at fudsonfilm.com, on Twitter, we're at fudsonfilm, or through Facebook, facebook.com slash fudsonfilm. Until next time, thanks very much for your attention, take care of yourself and each other. Goodbye. Goodbye.